So, like I said, tonight's drosh is going to be all about Passover or Pesach. And just to forewarn you, sort of, there's so much that I could have went into tonight's episode. Could have went into what Passover is, what Pesach involves, how to do Pesach, the symbolism, the deep history, all through the ages, through the centuries, etc., etc. That could have been many hours worth of a video. And I don't know about you, but I don't have the patience or the time or the stamina to sit here for several hours on end. So with that in regard, we did kind of boil it down to exactly what it is that you need to know and some of the more important things. And we always, always invite you to go further than this and do your own study. Now, of course, verify everything we say and back it up to the word. But in addition, always do your own study because that way you're going to learn so much more than you'll learn from any one person in one teaching. But hopefully this is going to give you a lot of information to go on to begin with. So definitely make sure to have your notes out and be ready to start taking those notes because tonight's drosh, like I said, it's going to be all about Passover. First off, we're going to start off with some terminology just to get you a good foundation about what's going to go on when we do the teaching. And obviously our first word we're going to learn is Pesach, right? And that's going to be Strong's H6453. Now Strong's defines it pretty much as, you know, Passover, an offering. Also used technically of the whole feast of Passover, which we'll get into that more in a minute too, because technically it's not a week-long celebration. Okay, let's go and get to it now, actually. Passover technically is the meal we eat on the 14th, right? That is the meal, the Passover lamb or goat, actually. We'll get into that later too. But it's, Passover is actually the meal that happens on the evening of the 14th that starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's what lasts for seven days. But Passover, I'm sorry, Pesach itself means Passover, or as Brown Driver Briggs describes it, festival of the Passover animal victim, like we just said, the Passover lamb sacrifice, or the sacrifice of Passover. Now, Jacinius actually has some interesting definitions for the word Pesach. They call it, or they define it as sparing or immunity from penalty and calamity. Very, very interesting. That applies not only to the exodus from Egypt, but also in our current time through the sacrifice of our Messiah, Yeshua. It also defines it as sacrifice offered on account of the sparing. The people of Israel were spared, continued slavery in Egypt, and we are spared from our sins because of Yeshua. So I just thought that was very, very interesting when I saw that. A Greek word for Passover is Pascha, if I'm pronouncing that right. <clears throat> but they pretty much define it the same way. It means pretty much the same thing in Greek. It means the Passover, meal, the day, or festival. And Thayer, or Thayer's defines pretty much the same thing. Paschal sacrifice, lamb, passing over, sparing. And this from the Greek-English lexicon. Another interesting thing I found here looking up this information. They define it pretty much the same way as the others, but here at the end, they note that it's often impossible, however, to use a phrase such as a Passover lamb, since a literal rendering, talking about in the Greek here, may suggest a lamb that passes over or a lamb that someone has passed over, either in the sense of ridden over or neglected. So I thought that was kind of neat. Of course, I'm a nerd for this kind of stuff, so I find that kind of neat. Hopefully you did too. Our next word is going to be matzah. For those of you who are not familiar, matzah is, well, in a general sense, just unleavened bread, bread that has not risen. It's not the loaves that you find in grocery stores that you make yourself. It's unleavened bread in a general sense. It could also be unleavened cakes. But a general bread product that is made without leavening. And the picture here you see is the popular and familiar form of matzo. Call it matzo bread, but it's actually more like a cracker in my opinion. And that's what <clears throat> you'll see at many, many, many 
Passover seders if you go to a big group. Our next word, this is one you may not have heard before. This is Strong's H7603. This is the word seor. Now, interestingly enough, we'll show you in scripture where this is used. But seor means something like a yeast cake or a barm. Now, if you don't know what a barm is, barm is like the frothy top of when they brew ale and beer and stuff like that. It's that frothiness right there. It can also be that frothy part on top of sourdough starter, like you see in the screen here. But that's what barm is. And this is what usually or could be meant by the term say or. Now think about it. Back in the days when they came out of Egypt, right? You didn't run down to your local grocery store and buy a can of yeast, right? Like when I make bread here, that's what I use. I use jars of yeast. We don't do the packets because we make so much bread. We get the big jars of yeast. Well, they didn't have that back then when they were enslaved in Egypt. So they had to continue producing their own yeast, right? Reproducing it. One of the ways they did that was by, well, one way would be like a sourdough starter or a leaven cake. They would save leftover bread from a previous bake and let that ferment and produce more yeast that they would use in the next bake. So when you think of sayor, kind of think of like this frothy kind of yeast mixture like you would find in a sourdough starter or like on the top of brewed ale or brewed beer. Interestingly enough, I was watching a documentary on Victorian bread making a while back, and they actually said that the way that bakers back in the Victorian Britain era used to get their yeast was by going to the brewers and skimming off that frothy part of the ale because they had the yeast in it, they would bring back to their bakeries to make their dough with. That's interesting as well. <clears throat> now, our next word we're going to learn is Strong's H2557, chametz. And this is the opposite of matzah. If matzah is unleavened bread, well, chametz is leavened bread or risen bread. <clears throat> bread that contains leavening or any other product that contains leavening, actually. But generally referring to breads, cakes, stuff like that. Now, look at this real quick, just an example. Exodus 12, 19. It says, For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened, that same shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether sojourner or native of the land. Now, here you can see some of the words we just went over to set up our foundation. We see chametz, right? Which means, in general, leavened bread, bread with leavening in it. Or it could be something like a beer that has leaven in it. Some wines might. But we also see the word there in the very beginning, seor, right? You should, for seven days, no leaven, no seor, is to be found in your houses. Now, this is interesting because traditionally, it would be stated that there's to be no yeast. That's the way it was traditionally understood, or at least the way that's how I was taught when I started coming into the Messianic faith. But a further study of that doesn't really hold up to Scripture from what I can see here. From what I can read... Having the yeast in your house, like those jars of yeast or those packets of yeast, is absolutely fine because it's not activated, it's not expanding, it's not fermenting, it's not doing anything but just sitting there. It's not causing any trouble. However, if you have that frothy stuff like sourdough starter or maybe you have the frothy top of a beer brew, I don't know, that would be, say, or that would be the leaven they're talking about here. That's what's not to be found in your house, as well as any leavened products like leavened bread, pizza dough, crackers with leavening in it, things like that. But point being that the yeast you have 
is fine as long as you don't mix it with grain and water and get it going. Okay. Leave it in its dormant state and you'll be just fine. At least the way we read it and understand it. If you have a different point of view, please feel free to write us and explain your stance or let us know down in the comments below also. <clears throat> now let's go over some Passover misnomers real quick. One misnomer that gets put around a lot, especially in mainstream churchianity. Passover is just a Jewish holiday. Okay. Now think about that a minute. Maybe you think that as well, but where did you read that? And how did you come to that conclusion or where are mainstream Christian preachers and laity getting this notion from, right? If we go back and look in scripture, what does scripture call Passover? Well, let's look for ourselves. Exodus 12, verse 11. And this is how you eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Pesach of Yahweh. It doesn't say the Pesach of the Jews. It says the Pesach of Yahweh. Again, Exodus 12, 26 through 27. And it shall be when your children say to you, what does this service mean to you? When you <clears throat> then you shall say, it is the Pesach slaughtering of Yahweh, not the Pesach slaughtering of the Jews. Again, Numbers 9, 10. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, When any male of you or your generations is unclean for a beam or is far away on a journey, he shall still perform the Pesach of Yahweh. The Pesach of Yahweh. Numbers 9.14 And when a stranger sojourns among you, then he shall perform the Pesach of Yahweh. Numbers 28.16 And in the first new moon, on the fourteenth day, is the Pesach of Yahweh. Alright? So, other people may say that Passover or Pesach is a Jewish festival, right? It's a Jewish holiday. But, we look in our scriptures and we see scriptures calling it the Passover or the Pesach of Yahweh. However, on that note, let me bring up one thing just in the matter of full disclosure. Okay, look at this from the Brit Hadashah. John 2.13 And the Pesach of the Yehudim was near. And Yeshua went up to Yerushalayim. Okay, interesting. Here in this verse, it calls it the Pesach of the Yudim, or Passover of the Jews. John 6, 4. And the Pesach was near, the festival of the Yudim. So there it is again. One more, John eleven fifty five. Now the Pesach of the Yehudim was near, and many went from the country up to Yerushalayim for the Pesach to set themselves apart. Okay, so there's three verses I was able to find in all of Scripture. But take notice of this. Number one, it only occurs in the Brit Hadashah. Number two, it only occurs in the book of John, which makes it very, very interesting to kind of think about. Why would the rest of Scripture, our very foundation, the Tanakh, call it the Feast of Yahweh, the Passover, Pesach of Yahweh. But then John call it the Passover of the Jews. Well, further study definitely needs to go into this, but the book of John, when he was writing this, was actually written to a Gentile audience, a Hellenistic audience. So, just theory here, but it could be that he's trying to explain it in a way that they would easily understand and pick up on rather quickly. Because remember, the Jerusalem Council told, or they declared, decided that new believers were to abstain from blood and from things strangled, from whoring and from idolatry, right? And they would learn everything else as they went to synagogue every Shabbat. So this could just be... John's way of getting them started into the faith where when they went to the Sabbath, went to the synagogue in Sabbath and they heard the Torah read, then they would pick up on the 
truth of the matter, which is, it's the Pesach of Yahweh, not the Passover of the Jews, right? Anyways, that's just my theory, my thoughts. If you think something differently, by all means, contact us or let us know down in the comments below. Another one, Yeshua died on Good Friday. This is a misnomer as well because it doesn't line up with Scripture. Let's look at this real quick. Matthew 12, 40. For as Yonah was three days and three nights in the stomach of the great fish, so shall the son of Adam be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, once Yeshua died, he's telling people that he would... All right, looks like we're back up and running. Do apologize for that. We'll hit right back where we were, uh, where we left off. Don't know what happened, but like I said, we got the blue screen of death from Windows. All of a sudden, I have no idea why. I thought we had gotten that taken care of, but apparently not. <clears throat> so, again, start we're back where we just left off. In Matthew 12, 40, Yeshua says, For as Yonah was three days and three nights in the stomach of the great fish, so shall the son of Adam be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we were just talking about the whole misnomer of Good Friday. So if scripture tells us that Yeshua is going to be in the grave for three days and three nights, you can't have him dying on Friday and then spending Saturday and then being found on the first day. Okay, we'll get into that in just a minute. But it's going to be three days and three nights. So keep that in mind. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Yeshua began to show to his taught ones that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer much from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and to be raised again the third day. Three days. Luke 9, 22. Saying, The son of Adam has to suffer much and to be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and to be raised the third day. Three days. Even after the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua, this is also confirmed. Acts 10, 39-40 And we are witnesses of all he did, both in the country of the Yehudim and in Jerusalem, whom they even killed by hanging on a timber. Elohim raised up this one on the third day, three days, and let him be seen. So they even confirmed that he was in there and raised on the third day. And then, look at John 20, verse 1. And on day one of the week, the first day of the week, Miriam from Magdala came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. Okay? And this is when she gets into the appearance and seeing Yeshua for the first time since he was crucified. Okay? So we know Scripture tells us that he was first seen after his crucifixion on the first day of the week. We also know that he had to be in the tomb for three days and three nights. So that would automatically rule out a Friday crucifixion. Now, this makes it easy, okay? If you know he was first seen on the first day of the week, then we can count back from there, okay? So that would mean Saturday would be a full day. Friday night would be a night. Friday would be a day. Okay, let's do this a different way. Saturday would be a day. Friday night would be a night. Friday would be a day. Thursday night would be a night. Thursday would be a day. Wednesday night would be a night. That would give us three nights and three days, right? Which means that he would have been crucified on Wednesday evening. That would have been the 14th of Aviv. 14th of the first month. That's when he would have been crucified according to the timeline that we get from Scripture. Now, another misnomer. This is actually kind of old. It's been going away, but I thought to bring it up anyways, just in case it was still circulating. The apostles celebrated Easter. No, they didn't. Okay, let's examine this real quick. This misnomer comes from this verse in the King James Version. Acts 12, 4. 
And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternarians of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Okay, well, Scripture says it right there. They had Easter, right? No, not exactly, okay? Let's look at this closer. The word here used for Easter is a word we've already learned. It's G3957, and that's the word Pascha. And remember when we went over the foundation and went over this word, what Pascha means? That's right, it means Passover. So the King James mistranslated the word for Passover as Easter. They were actually keeping Passover. The whole city was. So now let's get into the heart and the meat of the matter. Passover instituted. So we first see Passover all the way back in the book of Exodus, right? Because Exodus from Egypt, the whole slavery in Egypt story. And in Exodus 11, we see the pronouncement of the death of the firstborn, the last of the 10 plagues, right? Immediately after that, in chapter 12, is where the first Passover is instituted, okay? And every other Passover has been in memoriam and commemorates that Passover. Now, instead of reading the whole chapter to you, I decided to make summary bullet points just to, for sake of time. But in verse 2, we're told that it's in the first month of the year is when they have this Passover. Verse 3 tells them to take a lamb on the 10th day of the month. Verse 6 tells them to slay the lamb on the 14th day of the month between the evenings. Verse 7 tells them to apply the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of their houses. Verse 8 tells them that they are to eat the lamb roasted and not boiled. Roasted with fire, not boiled. Verse 10 tells them that anything that remains after they get done eating it has to be burnt with fire, completely consumed with fire. Verse 11 tells them to eat it as if they are ready to go, to eat it in haste, to eat it with their shoes on, their coats and their clothes on their back, their car keys in their hand, right? The staff in their hand. And to eat it quickly because they're going to have to be leaving. In verse 14, it says the uh, Pesach is foretold to be an everlasting ordinance. Everlasting, forever, all the way through down to today. Verse 15 tells them to eat unleavened bread for, oh, excuse me, for seven days. Verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 16, that the first and the seventh days are what we refer to as Shabbatons, okay? Now, a Shabbat is the weekly seventh day observance of the day of rest. A Shabbaton is a special day of rest that is attached to the Moedim and the feast days, Okay. With Passover, you have two Shabbatons, the first day and the seventh day, in addition to the weekly Sabbath that falls somewhere in between there, right? Could fall on one of those days, but you're going to have the first day is the Shabbaton, the last day, the seventh day is a Shabbaton, and you're going to have the weekly Shabbat as well. This is also attached to the Feast of Sukkot as well. Sukkot has Shabbaton. Verse 19, no leaven is to be found in your homes. We already went over that when we looked at Seor and Chametz, right? And then continuing on in chapter 12, verse 22, they tell them to use hyssop to apply the blood to the doorpost. And then after they do so, that they are not to leave their houses until it's all over with. Verse 23 says that Yahweh shall pass over the homes where the blood is applied on the doorpost. Then verse 24 says, And you shall guard this word as a law for you and your sons forever. Again, reiterating that Pesach and this festival or this feast of Passover is forever. Verse 28, the Israelites then did like they were told to do. Then verse 29, the firstborn of all of Egypt and whoever did not have the blood on their doorpost the firstborn in those homes died. They were killed. The angel of death 
came through and killed all of the firstborns. Then, verse 31, Pharaoh finally decides to send them out, let them go. Verse 33, all the other Egyptians, after losing their firstborn, they get ready and they get the Israelites out of there in a hurry because they don't want them there anymore. They're done. Verse 36, then the Israelites, the Hebrews, took silver and gold as they were commanded to from their Egyptian, uh, I could say neighbors, but they weren't really on the same class level, but they took it silver and gold from the Egyptians. They plundered them. Then verse 37, the Israelites then left Egypt and the numbers we get from scripture is about 600,000 men. And that's not counting the women, the children, and the livestock. So you can imagine the crowd of people that were leaving Egypt when the Israelites left out of Egypt. And that was just the Hebrews, the Israelites. Okay, Verse 38 also tells us that a mixed multitude of non-Hebrews, non-Israelites, went out with them as well. <clears throat> so it's very easy to imagine well over one million people leaving Egypt. Then in verse 49, we're told that there is one Torah, both for the Israelite and for those who are sojourning with them or amongst them, those who are grafted in to Israel. Okay, you can kind of start seeing the prophetic significance here, especially knowing what comes, you know, with Yeshua and all that. That everyone gets grafted in. And there's to be one Torah, one God, one Messiah, one scripture, one Torah for everyone, the native born and those grafted in. In fact, when we look at the story of Passover, this is so important to Yahweh that there are rules and protocols set up for Passover, okay? If you're unclean or if you're away, then obviously you can't celebrate Passover, but it's so important to Yahweh that there's actually a second chance to celebrate Passover if you miss it in the first month on the 14th day. Numbers 9, 6 through 12. But there were men who were defiled for a being of a man, being near a dead body, so that they were not able to perform the Pesach on that day. So they came before Moshe and Aaron that day, and those men said to him, we are defiled for the being of a man. Why are we withheld from bringing near the offering of Yahweh at its appointed time among the children of Israel? And Moshe said to them, Wait, let me hear what Yahweh commands concerning you. And Yahweh spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, When any male of you or your generations is unclean for a being, or is far away on a journey, he shall still perform the Pesach of Yahweh on the fourteenth day of the second new moon. Between the evenings they perform it. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they eat it. They do not leave of it until morning, and they do not break a bone of it. According to all the laws of the Pesach, they perform it. So, if someone happens to miss Pesach, the instituted day for Pesach, due to being away, due to being unclean, being near a dead body, or what have you, there's a second chance to perform the Pesach, the Passover, and you do that in month two on the 14th day. Same day of the month, same process, okay? Still lamb, still bitter herbs. Everything that would go into the first one, you just do it on the second month on the 14th day. Now, after they left out of Egypt, they continued to perform and celebrate Passover or Pesach while they were in the wilderness. Numbers 9, 1 through 4. And Yahweh spoke to Moshe in the wilderness of Sinai in the first new moon of the second year after they had come out of the land of Mitzrayim, saying, Now let the children of Israel perform the Pesach at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this new moon, between the evenings, perform it at its appointed time. According to all its laws and right rulings, you perform it. And Moshe spoke to the children of Israel to perform the Pesach. So, they had the first Pesach while they were in Egypt. 
while they were in the wilderness on the way to the promised land, they were still celebrating Pesach. And then when they got into the promised land, they celebrated Pesach. Joshua 5.10 And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and performed the Pesach on the 14th day of the new moon at evening on the desert plains of Yericho. That's not the end of it, though. It continues on. Again, Second te- I'm sorry, Second Kings 23.21 And the sovereign commanded all the people, saying, Prepare the Pesach to Yahweh your Elohim, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Ezekiel 45.21 In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the new moon, you have the Pesach, a festival of seven days unleavened bread is eating. In Ezra, after the exiles come back, they still celebrate the Pesach. Ezra 6.19 And the sons of the exile performed the Pesach on the fourteenth day of the first new moon, etc., etc., etc. So all throughout the Tanakh, up to this point, we can already see that they continued to uphold and celebrate Passover, Pesach. Now, if you know the history of the Hebrew people, the Israelites, they yo-yoed from serving and obeying Yahweh to down in the gutter doing things they should not be doing, and back up to being good and righteous, back down in the gutter, up and down, right? Then there was a point where the northern kingdom was dispersed among the nations, and they have yet to return to the land of Israel. And the southern kingdom was in captivity for a while, but they were allowed to return as a remnant. And that's who we know as the Jews today, or Judeans of the Hadashah period. Speaking of which, what about Passover and the Brit Hadashah? Okay, some people say, especially mainstream churchianity, that Messiah's come, he did away with the law and all those festivals. So, is that what really happened? Let's look at Luke 2 40 through 41. And the child grew and became strong in spirit being filled with wisdom, and the favor of Elohim was upon him. And his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the festival of the Pesach. Okay, this is when Yeshua was a child. His mother and his stepfather, Joseph, always took him to the Passover or the Pesach at Jerusalem. Luke 22.1 And the festival of Matzot drew near, which is called Pesach. John 2.13, And the Pesach of the Yudim was near, and Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. John 12.1, Accordingly, Yeshua, six days before the Pesach, came to Beth Anya, where Eleazar was, Lazarus, right? Who had died, whom he raised from the dead. So he went and had Pesach with Lazarus. But this was all during the life of Yeshua, while he was walking amongst us, teaching, showing us how to do things correctly, right? He was keeping the Pesach. Well, what about after the death, burial, and resurrection? Okay, Acts 12, 1 through 4. And about that time, Herodes, or Herod, the sovereign, put forth his hands to do evil to some from the assembly. And he killed Jacob, the brother of Yohanan, with a sword. And seeing that it was pleasing to the Yehudim, he proceeded further to arrest Kepha as well, and they were the days of unleavened bread. So when he had seized him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to watch over him, intending to bring him before the people after Pesach. So they were still keeping it even after the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua. And if you'll remember also, this is right here in verse 4 very end is where King James mistranslates Pesach. Hebrews 11.27, this is how important that Passover and Pesach still is. By belief, he, speaking of Moshe, left Mitzrayim, not fearing the wrath of the sovereign, for he was steadfast as seeing him who is invisible. By belief, he performed the Pesach in the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So why is this important? Well, If you know about Hebrews chapter 11, this is what they call the hall of faith, okay? You've got Abraham, you've got Moses, etc., 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 all listed here. 
what they call the Hall of Faith. And in this Hall of Faith, they include Pesach. 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8 Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the entire lump? Therefore, cleanse out the old leaven, so that you are a new lump, as you are unleavened. For also Messiah our Pesach was slaughtered for us. So then, let us celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of evil and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the Apostle Shaul, or Paul, is writing to the church of Corinth right here, using imagery from Pesach and the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I mean, you can see it right here. He talks about leaven and how leaven leavens the entire lump and that we should conduct ourselves not with the old leaven or celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's using this imagery as a stand-in for sin. And that's something that we can really learn from Pesach in the festival of unleavened bread, where leaven being a metaphor for sin, getting all the leaven out of our house is a metaphor for getting all of the sin out of our lives and being done with it. And that's what Paul is alluding to here in his letter to the Corinthians. But he's using that imagery of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it was still ongoing even at this time, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua. So what about some customs? Well, the customs that people do on Passover are going to vary from synagogue to synagogue between different sects and between, you know, if you're Ashkenazi or Sephardic, you could do things differently. If you're Messianic, you could do things differently. So we're just going to give you some of the basics and then you can make your own traditions from there. Or if you have a synagogue or a messianic fellowship that you can have Passover with, then you can go and enjoy the way they do their Seder. But here are the basics that you'll probably see if you go to a Seder like that, or if you're planning on having your own Seder at home. Number one, you have the meat, which consists of a lamb or a goat. Because we're told back in Exodus 12, 5, to roast a lamb or a goat for Passover. That was the original Passover sacrifice, right? So when we have our Passover meal or Passover Seder, we have lamb or goat. Also, you'd have unleavened bread. Because as soon as you have that Passover meal, that starts the seven days of unleavened bread. So you would have something like matzah. Now you can have that whether it's homemade or you can have it store-bought. What you see in the picture right here and what most people are used to is store-bought, cracker-type uh, cracker matzah, unleavened bread. But you can make it yourself too. It's not that hard. It's quick and easy. There's no rise time because there's no leavening. And it's really good. You can make it the way you want. You can make it a little thicker so it's not cracker-like. I highly suggest it. One point to note, though. Do not use self-rising flour. Okay? Self-rising flour has all the stuff for leavening in it. Okay? Don't use self-rising flour. Use all-purpose flour or bread flour. Something like that. That doesn't have that leavening stuff already mixed into it if you make your own. Also, you're going to want some bitter herbs and some haroset. Okay. Now, bitter herbs comes from scripture. It's one of the things that's commanded as part of the Passover meal. It comes from Exodus 12, 8. However, haroset is a tradition. Okay. It's good. And it's meant to symbolize the mortar that's used by the Israelites when they were in Egypt in slavery. But it doesn't come from scripture. It's just tradition. And there is nothing wrong with that. And Harrowset is actually pretty good. It's made, well, any number of ways, but generally with apples and nuts and then honey and maybe some other stuff through in, like maybe some wine, if you want to throw in some wine or some raisins or what have you. 
It's actually pretty good. Then you're going to want to have some parsley stalks. Okay, this is representative of the hyssop that was used for putting the blood on the doorpost. And if you're in a Seder and you're doing the actual Seder, you'll use the parsley for dipping in the salt water. Okay. Then traditionally, also, it doesn't come from scripture, but, well, maybe it does. But at a Seder, you'll have either wine or grape juice. This doesn't come from the Tanakh and the original institution of Pesach, but as we read from our Messiah Yeshua, as he was having the Last Supper, he drank from the cup that had wine in it, and he used that as a metaphor for his blood, right? Using the bread as his body and the cup of wine metaphorically as his blood. Now, if you go to a Judaism Seder or a Messianic congregation that follows a lot of things of Judaism, then you might find an egg as well. Now, this does not come from Scripture. It's a tradition that's been added in to the Passover Seder. However, like Easter, it probably didn't come from a good source, which is why I would highly recommend not having an egg in your Passover Seder. That's why I've got it marked out here. I wanted to bring it to your attention, but I did mark it out. Don't want no eggs on our plates in our Passover Seder, because when you look at religious things that we do, or other people do, you don't find eggs with scripture in religious stuff. It's okay to eat them. Nothing wrong with eating an egg. But don't have it in religious ceremonies or goings on. That's the point. Also, if you plan on having your own Seder yourself, or if you are going to a Seder, you're going to see or need to have salt water. Now, again, this is tradition. This is something that's been added to the Passover Seder. It doesn't come from Scripture, but it's meant to symbolize the tears of the Israelites while they were in bondage in Egypt. So that is the um, salt water. Now, also, some other food that can go along with your meal. You're not going to eat just what we listed. You want some other stuff to go with it. That's just for the Seder part. Some other stuff that you could have during your Passover meal or during the Feast of Unleavened Bread is things like any bread or dessert that's not leavened. Now, I may get in trouble for saying this, and I may step on some toes, but angel food cake is acceptable, okay? It is thick, but it's not risen, okay? If you know how angel food cake is made, it's not made by letting yeast or leaven rise like you would a loaf of bread. Angel food cake is made by whipping air into egg whites and then baking it while it's still whipped up. That's how you get angel food cake. And that's why angel food cake is okay for Passover. You could also eat matzah, unleavened bread, obviously, for Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. And matzah balls. If you want a good matzah ball recipe, please write to us at team at godhonesttruth.com. We make matzah balls a meal at least once a month all throughout the year, not just for Passover. That's how much our family loves matzah balls. And if you've never had matzo balls, you haven't lived. You're missing out. Have some matzo balls, please. Not store-bought. Make them yourself. So much better homemade. You can also have dairy. Things like egg dishes, quiche, fried eggs, scrambled eggs, etc., etc., yogurt, cream cheese, stuff like that. Now, you may think it's weird that I throw eggs in here. But like I said, it's nothing wrong with eating eggs. It's having eggs as part of a religious some kind of religious significance, right? Like a Seder or a egg hunt, right? But eating eggs, absolutely nothing wrong with that. Then you have your meat that you can have. Of course, kosher meat. Things like salmon, gefilte fish, if that's your thing. Beef, poultry. Only tried gefilte fish once. Maybe it's an acquired taste that I never acquired. But to each their own. I'll put it that way. Quinoa, 
Still don't know what quinoa is, but it's acceptable for Passover. Nuts, like almonds, peanuts, cashews, things like that. Fruits, obviously. No leavening, completely kosher. Have some fruit. Rice. Rice does not have leavening. It's just a grain. Okay, and usually cook it by steaming it or boiling it. Or like we did tonight for supper, we fried rice. Always good. Beans. Obviously, just like rice, has no leavening. It's kosher, so you can have some beans. And pretty much, if you have any other questions about what to eat, anything that's kosher and unleavened, all the stuff that goes along with the normal dietary laws outlined in Torah, and then the special dietary laws for Pesach. Okay, so that would mean kosher and unleavened. Pretty simple, actually. Now, if you're going to do your own Seder at home, or if you go to a Seder meal, you might see something like this. This is a Seder plate. You can get things that are sort of fancy like this, or you can get something that's, you know, more down to earth. Something that's colorful for the kids, even. If you're in a big group setting, you may not see something like this, because that would add to the expense of the event. But you definitely could get something like this reasonably for your own Passover Seder at home. Again, this is not required. It's just something that people like to have at a Passover Seder. Now, with that being said, the Seder for Passover <clears throat> is not required from Scripture. Okay? We outlined Exodus 12 for you. And we just did a summary, but you can go back and look for yourself. And like we said, we always urge you to do your own research and learn more, even more than you have tonight. And what you'll find is that in Scripture, there's no command to have some sort of order or service, some Seder. Okay, The Seder is just a tradition that helps you go through you know, celebrating Passover and generally in a group setting. But a Seder is not required, okay? What's required for celebrating Passover, according to scriptures, is the lamb or the goat, right? Bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Everything else comes by tradition. Doesn't mean it's bad, but it's still tradition and not required according to scripture. So we have the goat or the lamb, have the unleavened bread, have the bitter herbs. And then you are Torah and scripture observant and in line. You don't have to have the harrow set, which is really good anyways. You don't have to have the wine or the grape juice. So after you have those three things, make Seder your own. Come up with your own customs. I heard one family, they would have their... Seder together as a family, and then afterwards they would go and watch Prince of Egypt, right? That cartoon, I think it's from Disney, maybe. But they'll go and watch Prince of Egypt about the Exodus story and Moses. And it's, you know, certainly not completely accurate to the story, but it helps kids come along. But as a dad, this is your job to help them learn the truth and the ins and outs of it, anyways. So make your own customs. You could have the kids decorate and do crafts beforehand, right? Make little matzah drawings or print off some coloring pages or, you know, just get creative. You can do a search online for craft ideas or helpful ways to celebrate Passover or food for Passover, okay? Now, with that being said, also... Keep in mind, if you're searching for food, especially food, for Passover online, you'll likely come across a lot of sources of Judaism, okay? And that's not bad, but keep in mind that they have added to Torah, and sometimes they think things are required when things aren't actually required, and they will speak them believing they are required. So it's up to you to do your own due diligence and what to take from your research, okay? And like food and customs, stuff like that. 
like we went over it. The egg, definitely don't want to do that. But other stuff that maybe the Jews have added to Torah that makes it more stringent, but doesn't go against the Bible, hey, if you want to do that, go for it. You know, later on, if you decide to change it, and change it. But, you know, just keep that in mind as you do your research. Also, oh, I should have pointed this out earlier. Let me go back real quick. There we go. That picture you see there, it says, uh, kosher le Pesach, right? Which means kosher for Passover. This is food that's specially marked and labeled in your grocery store that is certified kosher by a Jewish inspector for Passover. I mean, it has no leaven in it. And it's, you know, in addition to being kosher. So if you're really concerned about it, you can look for that label. You can find it on matzah. You can find it on meat, dairy, orange juice, as you see here, all kinds of stuff. So if you're really concerned about it and looking for that, then make sure to watch out for that label that says kosher le Pesach or says kosher for Passover. You might even see that little Orthodox Union um, certification there with a P beside it, like you see in the picture. But in summary, Passover commemorates the powerful hand of Yahweh redeeming the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. That was the very first instituted Passover, Pesach, and has continued ever since. Passover also commemorates the sacrifice of our Messiah Yeshua, who is described as the Passover lamb. So for us, as Christians or Messianics, this has a double meaning when it comes to Passover. The Hebrews, as we saw, kept Passover all throughout the Tanakh, even after they came back from exile. Yeshua, as we saw, kept the Passover, and he was our Passover. The apostles and the faithful of the Brit Hadashah kept the Passover. Passover, as we saw, is an everlasting, ongoing ordinance, meaning forever. And for all these reasons we just listed, especially because of the powerful miracle that Yahweh performed in Egypt and because of the awesome sacrifice that Yeshua gave for us. That is why we should continue to keep Passover because we have doubly the reasons to remember and commemorate Passover. And that's just the God honest truth.